Thank you so much, Ivan. Whether you've uh, joined with us here in person or you're worshiping with us at home, I, I, I want to warmly welcome all of you. Uh, my name is uh, Ivan Just Prayed, Milt Johnson, and I'm always thrilled for the opportunity to open up God's Word and uh, look together at the instructions God has provided for us there. And I especially have been enjoying the teaching that Jesus uh, shares in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. So if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, I want to invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be specifically looking, as Ivan read a moment ago, at verses 38 through 42. Something also that I'd like to kind of express to you is um, because of the pandemic, uh, I think we got out of the habit of grabbing a note sheet when we come in. And personally, I think that's incredibly helpful for you to have a reference to look at during the week. And so uh, I would encourage you to try to get in the habit of grabbing a note sheet, follow along, fill in the, the information that we share in these sermons. On the back is an application project, which if you'll allow the Lord to, to spend some time with him in, your, in his word to apply the principles that we're looking at. I can't encourage you more um, than, than to make that a priority. As you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, I'd like to share with you a, a true story. I'm kind of a history buff, and every once in a while I read a story, and I say, wow, that might be something that I could use in the future. And such is the story of a man named Lucian Anderson. Lucian Anderson was a member of the Kentucky House of Representatives from 1855 to 1857, and uh, he was a very distinguished soldier and statesman and lawyer, so much so that the, one day the governor came to him of Kentucky and said, look, you know, if there is anything that can, Kentucky can do for you, please don't hesitate to let me know. You name it, and I'll make it happen. Uh, shortly after that, um, Lucian found out that, uh, that he had a childhood friend who was in the state penitentiary. And he had already served a number of years, and he had eight more years to go. And so Lucian went back to the governor and, uh, and, and uh, asked if he uh, would give him a pardon. Um, and, 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 and so the governor did agree to give him a pardon, but he said, I want you to do one thing before you actually give it to him. He said, I want you to sit and talk to him for a couple of hours. And as you talk to him, share your heart with him and see how he responds. Well, anyway, they have this meeting. They go and they sit and they talk, and um, and there they sat down. and And Lucian hurried uh, into the conversation and was having a good time. They were enjoying this visit, and uh, he said to Sam, "When you get out of here, the fellow's name was Sam. Will, will you go into business with me? I, I might even uh, I, I might even be able to get you out of here sooner than you expect." Well, Sam got a little nervous. He walked over to the window, and he stared out the window for a while. And then turning back to his friend Lucian, he said, I don't believe I can accept that invitation. I've got something really important to do when I get out of here, something very important. Um, I'm going to do it just as soon as I get out of this prison cell. Well, what is that? Lucian asked his friend. And with hatred just beaming off his face, Sam turned to his friend and said, I'm going to get two men together. The judge and the witness has sent me up here, and I'm going to kill them both with my bare hands. Lucian tore up the pardon and left the prison very discouraged. And I thought to myself, what a great illustration of the power of revenge can hold in a man's heart. 
But if you think about it, that's a rather extreme example of revenge and retaliatory nature that we have. It comes in a lot less graphic forms as well. Something we can relate to. Uh, I was reading a story this week about a, a young woman, a young mom, who one day heard her seven-year-old son scream from their bedroom, and so she ran into the room to find out what was going on, and she found that his little sister was pulling his hair. And gently releasing the hair out of the little girl's hand, the mother comfortingly said, Oh, there, there, son. She didn't mean it. She doesn't know that it hurts. And he acknowledged it and nodded, and she left the room. And a few steps down the hallway, she heard the little girl scream. And rushing back into the room, she asked, Well, what happened? And the little boy smiled and said, She knows now. My friends, it is against that spirit of revenge that we find Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount speaking or addressing this week. Follow along as I read verses 38 through 42 in your Bibles there. Here is what the word of the Lord tells us. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone should sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. In my research for this sermon, I found this was a quite controversial sermon, as you can well imagine. Commonly misinterpreted, uh, these verses have been uh, used to support, uh, for centuries now, promote uh, pacism, uh, uh, um, conscientious objectors, lawlessness, anarchy, that Christians should just be pious doormats, and a host of other things. However, I do not believe, as I studied this text this week, that uh, Jesus is, um, is, is saying that a, a Christian, when they're in danger, cannot uh, defend himself. As, he resists, as we resist him, uh, re, uh, retaliation, Jesus is not saying that Christians should not or cannot fight in a just war either. I believe the main emphasis that we're going to see in this text today is Jesus is clearly debunking any rationale that we might try to use in our hearts to justify our personal retaliation. Now, with these opening thoughts in mind, I want you to look with me at the first phrase here, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's found, if you're, if you're curious, in three places in the Old Testament. I've listed them on your note sheet, but if you didn't have that note sheet, Exodus 21, verse 24, Leviticus 24, verse 20, and uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. This is often referred to as the law of retribution. And as I studied these verses that I just referenced, I saw four major impacts that I believe God wants as a result of this law to be in the hearts of his people. The first thing that I saw is this law made certain, it made certain that punishment fit the crime. The punishment fit the crime. A judge, for example, 
should not prescribe the death penalty for someone running a stop sign or jaywalking, nor should he find someone uh, a $20 fine who's committed murder and release him. The idea of this law was that it would not be excessive and it would not be lenient either. It would fit the crime. Secondly, this law was meant to prevent personal, hear me well, personal retaliation. I'm sure, as I just described in my opening illustrations here, that you and I both understand that it is man's basic sinful nature to retaliate when we're wrong. If, he receive, if we receive an ounce of, of injury, we want to get a pound of revenge, right? We see this in little kids. Uh, how many times have you seen that with your own children? One kid bumps into another, the second one strikes the first one, and the next thing you know, it escalates into a wrestling match on your living room floor. Nations do the same thing if you think about it. One nation is offended, the other retaliates with greater offense, and before too long, if it's not brought under control, it can become an outright uh, war. And knowing the heart of man, I believe God put this law into place to prevent that quick, revengeful retaliation. That's the second reason this law was created. Third, this law was meant to deter further crime. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 18 and through 21. Here's what it says in scripture. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if a witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as had meant to be done to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Now look at verse 20. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And although our society has drifted away from God's word and intent when it comes to justice and, and uh, uh, punishment here, God's clear desire is that justice be fair and speedy and it's meant to be a deterrent for others who might be considering the same crime down the road here. And that brings me to the fourth. This law was meant to ensure justice through civil authorities, not private vengeance, which was a problem. The scribes and Pharisees, you see, at this time that Jesus spoke these words, had twisted this law into meaning basically when someone offends you, it's almost required. It's your right to take revenge on, on, uh, revenge on them. Um, somebody described it as the Jewish mafia, you know, that you, you, know, you just took immediate action. And a kingdom citizen, we're going to see, I think, the emphasis of Jesus' teaching in this text. Remember, it's about personal retaliation. Christians, believers, followers in Jesus Christ should as Christ points out here today, be characterized by our humility and our selflessness, willing to work and trust God through civil authorities, not private vengeance. Ultimately, it comes down to whether we're willing to trust God and ourselves and our circumstances to do the right thing in his right timing. That's not always easy, I admit, but that's the emphasis we see in this text. And today we'll also see that while the world, and we see this all the time, I was listening throughout this week to hear this message, and I heard it multiple times, the world is constantly about getting your due, right? Getting even, looking out for ourselves, protecting our own personal rights, 
And what I see in Scripture is, especially the words of Christ here, is that kingdom citizens are to hold very loosely to our personal rights, preferring to forego those rights for the sake of being a, a good witness of the gospel and of the kingdom of Christ. And that, my friends, is what I think. That's a summary of what I think Jesus means here in verse 39 when he commands us saying, do not resist the one who is evil. And looking back here at verses 39 now through 42, I want to walk through and show you that Jesus now provides four illustrations, specific illustrations to help us to understand how we can resist the evil committed against us what that's going to look like in our daily lives, these four illustrations. First, we are to resist the evil committed against us by those threats on our personal honor, on our personal honor. But I say to you, says Jesus here in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, turn to him the other also. Among the Jews at this time, and even in contemporary society, a slap on the face is not necessarily meant to inflict harm, or, but rather it's a demonstration of extreme contempt for that person. It's demeaning. It's humiliating. It was so disrespectful at the time of Christ that I read this week that even slaves would prefer to be beaten with a whip than to be slapped in the face. And Jesus' instructions here in verse 39 show us that if we want to demonstrate this genuine life-transforming righteousness that comes from our heart that only he can provide, then even when we are personally insulted, maligned, or treated with contempt, we will turn the other cheek. Now, what does that mean? As I understand it, it's responding with a non-avenging, non-retaliatory, and gentle spirit that only Christ can provide. Refusing to resist, as I understand it, meaning not to retaliate, in this case, is an act of trust on the believer, on God, who cares for us, and a clear demonstration of his working in and through us in this world. Um, we see this principle lived out in the life of Jesus, if you think about it. That's who we're following. He is our Savior. Before he went to the cross, he was treated with the utmost of disrespect, those in the court, the soldiers, every, all the people jeering at him. And yet, according to Scripture, and it always blows my mind when I read this, he never uttered a word against any of them. Instead, Jesus exercised great self-control. He resisted the urge to retaliate. He resisted the urge to insult, and even rightly to say, you're going to get your due, right? That judgment that he knew was coming. How could Jesus respond in this way? A verse that helps us see that is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Here is what we're told. When he, Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he, he, he did not threaten, but continued. Hear those words. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice, dear brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, Jesus made a choice in that moment to entrust himself to God, his Father, that he would provide all that he needed and that he would be the perfect judge at the perfect time. Jesus is our example. And just as Jesus entrusted himself, and literally that means he kept on trusting himself, entrusting himself, and, and, and those attacks and the insults that he was uh, having to endure, he entrusted all to God so believers 
we can entrust ourselves and those attacks and those insults that we need to endure at times into God's hands, knowing confidently that in the end, he will judge all things rightly and make all things right. Again, this is the emphasis I see in this text. The world, it encourages us uh, to get even, look out for ourselves, protect our personal rights. But as kingdom citizens, as followers of our great King Jesus Christ, we are to hold loosely, loosely our personal rights, preferring to forego those rights for the sake of bearing witness of the gospel and of the kingdom. Second, we are to resist the evil committed against us. This is the second illustration on those threats on our personal justice. Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, says Jesus here, let him have your cloak as well. Now to understand, as I, as I was looking at text here, the, the biblical text here, the significance of this illustration, we need to know that in uh, the time of Jesus, the Jews, they wore two principal garments. They did not go into a large walk-in closet every day and pick out their favorite clothing. They really, most of them, were so poor that that was all they had all day long. They worked in it, they slept in it, and there were two primary pieces of clothing. The first is the tunic, which was a robe, and the second thing was a costlier garment, a, a cloak. And this cloak was used as a jacket or an overcoat during the day, but it was also what they slept under at night to keep them warm. And for this reason, as you look at the law, we see that it was so considered such a basic need by those Jewish people that it was never to be, uh, they were never to be forced to go without it. And yet, in these uh, lawsuits, uh, a claim could be made against somebody if they wanted to sue you. And if you had no other resources, I, I saw several places that the court could potentially require you to pay that debt off with your clothing, okay? The Mosaic Law, however, made this statement in Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. It says here, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it, 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 his cloak for his body. It is what, uh, in what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And so if a cloak was taken as a pledge, it had to be returned in the evening for that poor man. It was his only covering. And thus, if, it, if you follow the instructions here of Jesus, which is really intense here, for someone to be sued of their tunic and then also to be willing to throw in their outer garment or cloak was, uh, was, was literally to be brought to extreme detribution and tantamount to being basically giving up your personal justice. And I thought, well, what does that mean? I thought a lot about this. But I think so often as I, as I was wrestling through this personally, we often want to do the bare minimum. And what I see Jesus saying through this imagery or through this illustration, the point is that when we've wronged someone, we should be willing, I think, to yield more than what is required to pay them. Humbly trusting in God to provide for our needs. It's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. Jesus' orientation about personal rights and about sacrifice for others, it shouldn't really come as a surprise to those who belong to his kingdom, right? After all, he gave up all his rights. He left the realms of heaven to redeem us. 
Third, we are to resist evil committed against us by threats on our personal liberty. This is one I think that strikes at the heart of us more than anything. Verse 41. And if anyone faces you or forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. As Americans, we enjoy so much personal freedoms that it's hard. It's really hard for us to fathom or understand accepting the threat of having any one of those rights taken away from us. And we just might get a little resentful if someone tries to do so. And so imagine on a, uh, a, 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 in the time of Christ, one day you're working in your yard, or perhaps you're, you're going on your daily routines and business, or you're just walking down the street, up comes this gruffy Roman soldier, and he thrusts his heavy pack into your arms and says, carry it. At that time, you had no other choice but to carry that pack for one mile. It was the law. And that is precisely what happened regularly to the civilians in territories that were occupied by the Romans. An actual example of that, if you think about it, is Luke 23, right? When uh, Simeon of uh, Serene was, uh, was forced, selected and forced to carry the cross of Jesus. In such cases, Jesus says, hey, kingdom citizen, don't seek revenge. Don't complain along the way, but be willing to carry that despised burden with grace. In fact, if you're forced to go a mile, Jesus says, take the load and go two miles, which, by the way, literally meant four miles because for every mile out, you have to trek back, right? Can you imagine what Jesus' listeners did when they heard this? They were probably shocked behind anything. Most of the Jews, you see, were looking for this mighty military type of uh, Messiah. And here they have Jesus. They would never expect him to give a command of non-retaliation and cooperation with the Roman Empire. They're our hated enemies. What are you talking about? And taken out of context and with skepticism, I think, like Jesus' listeners, it's easy for our, uh, us as well in our human nature to likewise jump to the assumption that, that Jesus means be wimpy or weak and surrender to bullies and invaders. Instead, I would submit to you that Jesus is describing a person who is strong enough to take control, strong enough to give to his enemy more than they ask for. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, the Apostle Paul will later write, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That kind of response you see to our enemies makes it possible for God to demonstrate that transforming work that he's doing in our hearts. He shows his goodness even in us through the face of the most evil intents imposed on us. It shouts in clear terms that, that their abuse and their insults, they, they can't overcome the power and the influence of the gospel in the life of a Christian's um, kingdom citizen. After all, how are God's people any different from the scribes and from the Pharisees and from the world if we only love people who love us back? And how are God's people any different from the world and from the Pharisees and the scribes if all we're willing to show kindness to are people who are willing to show kindness in return? Even sinners, Jesus will say next week in our study, 
who do not live according to any biblical ethnical framework are willing to do that. What makes a kingdom citizen different, says Jesus, is if we are willing to love and to do good even when there is no promise of return. And amazingly, this is what blows my mind, even when it may result in personal insult and abuse to ourselves. The person, if you think back to Jesus' illustration, it occurred to me, when the soldier handed him the pack, he, he didn't have any choice, none whatsoever. But now Jesus says, kingdom citizen, you get to make a choice. And if you choose to take that pack another mile, it says a lot about you. It says a lot about me and the relationship you have with me. It says, I'm going to help you not because I have to, but because I choose to. It's saying, I am willing to hold loosely to my personal rights, preferring to forego the rights for the sake of bearing witness for the gospel and for the kingdom of Christ. Powerful, powerful message. This week, I was introduced to a new app called Open Doors. Um, it's an app that attempts to connect believers to the persecuted church around the world so that we might pray very specifically for them. Almost immediately, and if you have the opportunity to look at this app, and I would recommend that, as I looked at the content of this app, it became impossible for me to ignore the disparities between the Western church and, and the churches in countries where believers in countries where persecution is violent and extreme. Now to be sure, there is some level of hostility against Christians in some parts of our American culture. But we are here sitting here openly worshiping Christ without fear of imprisonment, abuse, or torture. Praise God for that. May we never take that for granted. Unlike many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in countries like Northern Korea and Afghanistan and India, we have no idea what they're going through. We will get more of this next week, but allow me to say this. As I poured over the prayer request, and I, I, I want to challenge you to do that, of these persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, I couldn't help but be overcome with amazement and humility by the love the persecuted church had for those afflicting them. Over and over again, far more than calls for justice and get me out of this, we're asking for prayer that they would display the love and the boldness of Christ in spite of their suffering for the gospel. And, and the other thing that they prayed for often, would you help me, would you pray for me that I can quickly forgive my tormentors? Wow. Their example got me really thinking, really did. <laughs> Why do you and I have such a hard time with forgiving people who don't, like us or who insult us, while the persecuted church seems to be thriving in this area? Do you, do I truly understand that a bitter and resentful spirit doesn't fit who we are in Jesus Christ? Do we truly understand how unhealthy physically, spiritually it is to carry anger, retaliatory attitudes for others, not only to ourselves, but to everyone around us? Is there a need in our lives, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, 
like our persecuted brothers and sisters, to make a habit of praying more often for those who are hurting us. Remember, again, this is the theme I see throughout this text. The world, it encourages, get even, look out for oneself, protect one's personal rights. And Christ is emphasizing kingdom citizens. We should hold loosely to our personal rights, preferring to forego those rights for the sake of bearing witness to the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. And finally, fourth, as we look back at our text, we are to resist evil committed against us by those threats on our personal possessions. Give to the one who begs from you, says Jesus in verse 42. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And immediately when I read that text, it occurred to me that the, the statement prior to this implied someone of more power, right? Greater wealth, maybe a Roman soldier or a member of the community that had more standing. This statement, however, takes us to a whole new level and speaks about that person with less power. And I see Jesus with this contrast saying that kingdom citizens are to humbly submit ourselves to those of the lowest rungs of society who have needs. Now, mind you, Jesus does not mean, hey, turn off your brain, be naive, be gullible, uh, by becoming easy marks for those that are lazy and those who are unwilling to work. The scripture so clearly, clearly admonishes us against that. But what it does mean, as I look at this text, is that God wants us to possess a sacrificial, purposeful, giving mindset to anyone who expresses a legitimate need and who we are able to assist, especially those in the household of faith. Generosity, that's John's favorite word. He's always reminding us it should have been a core value. Generosity, instructs Jesus, should characterize the heart of every kingdom citizen. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it tells us that needy Christians should not even have to ask for help. This blew my mind on, on Wednesday when I saw it. But if anyone has the world's goods, and note, sees his brother in need. Here's what John writes. Yet closes his heart against him. How, he asked, does the love of God abide in him? Which begs the question, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you, am I, allowing my love, your love, for personal possessions and my comfort and your comfort to prevent us, blind us from seeing and serving God by assisting in the needs of others? Later, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, in this very same sermon, Jesus will command us not to store up riches in earth, but build treasures in heaven by practicing trust and generosity, doing his work. Likewise, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul will instruct kingdom citizens to learn to be content with food and covering, remembering that God is the one who gives and owns everything. We are nothing more and stewards or managers of God's resources. Let me also remind you that our ultimate example of love and giving sacrificially is Jesus himself. That's why in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, pointing to the cross, Jesus instructs us, uh, John instructs us saying, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for brothers which got me spinning for probably about an hour that day. Well, what does it mean 
practically for us to lay down our lives as Jesus laid down his life for us. Several thoughts came to my mind. I'll share them with you, but I encourage you to think about this. It means giving up our rights for others, just as Jesus did. It means seeking the best, even when it hurts or costs us deeply for others. It means putting the needs and interest of their needs and interest above our own. It's just really tough. You see, real love is not just a feeling, not just an emotion, it's an action, it's a verve. It produces selfless, sacrificial generosity in our hearts when we truly understand and apply what Jesus is saying. That's why in 1 John 3, verse 18, it goes on to command us, little children, let us not love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth as well. In closing, as I was wrapping up my study here, it occurred to me that the words of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount so reflect the thoughts and principles that Paul points to in Romans 12, 17 through 20. And I'd like to put those up on the screen, and I want to invite you to read them with me. Allow them to penetrate our hearts as we read them together. Let's read them together. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not. Let's repeat 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Powerful, powerful words. Admittedly, everything that I've said today is mind-blowing. It's, it, it's relinquishing our personal rights for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom, uh, when we're wronged, is no easy thing. Not only is it contrary to our natural uh, humanistic bent to retaliate when someone wrongs us, but I was sitting here during the first service and reminded by the closing song, it is utterly impossible to be lived out unless we recognize and we acknowledge, just as we're going to sing in a moment, yet not I, but Christ through me. It is his transforming power. It is his presence in our lives and our hearts that enables us um, not to look at the world as a place to get even or have one's own rights always protecting our personal rights. It's what enables us to hold loosely to our personal rights, preferring to forego the rights, our rights for the sake of uh, being that witness for the gospel and the kingdom. Amen? Everything I said, it's got to be yet not I, but Christ through me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this uh, very practical reminder from our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for his example. We are so blessed to have a Savior that loved us so much that uh, even while we were yet sinners, went to the cross and died in our place and for our sins. And I pray if there's anyone here today that has never yet come to the realization of what Christ has done and accepted him as their Savior, that they, they would not leave here today without putting their trust in him. Thank you, though, for Lord, for all of us who know our, our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We pray that, Lord, as a result of looking at these words that he so clearly presents, that it will be our desire, Lord, to reflect him in every way, in the way we talk, in the way we treat people, in the way we show grace. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.